0: What's up everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Sunday Scary Stock Talk podcast with Sam Stribling at Strib on Common Stock and at Sam underscore Stribling three on Twitter. Be sure to give him a follow. We get into his holdings, how he views the overall macro environment, some of these strategies that he has, and uh, he's been investing as a retail investor for 10 years. So a lot of people that are listening to this can probably relate. So be sure to give it a listen all the way through and let me know what you think. Give us both a follow, five-star review, et cetera, et cetera. And as always, nothing said on this podcast should be taken as financial advice. Both Sam and I are not financial advisors. So please, please, please do not take it as financial advice. Everything that is said here is an opinion and strictly our opinion and If you want to invest in anything that is mentioned in the show, please do your own research and your own due diligence as everything we have said here is strictly for entertainment purposes. Now, let's get into the show. Whoosh. What's up, everybody? We're back with another edition of the Sunday Scary Stock Talk podcast. I'm here with Sam Stribling at Strib on Common Stock, if you guys are on there. Um, and then also Sam underscore Stribbling 3 on Twitter. Sam, how are we doing today?
1: Doing pretty good, my friend. So thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be on here. Um, yeah,
0: welcome, welcome. All right, for those who don't know anything about you or anything like that, why don't you introduce yourself and introduce, uh, you know, give yourself a little background on on your investing journey and everything like that.
1: Sure. So um, to start off, I'm, I'm a retail investor, kind of like most out there. Uh, been doing it for about 10 years now. So at least I've kind of stood the course for a little bit. Um, I work in technology um, as a small business owner, actually, myself. And so I work specifically with um, hospitals risk management's, and their information systems, more or less. So actually, it's Salesforce.com is the platform that basically allows me to do what I do. So I spend quite a bit of time there um, and just looking forward to following the market. Like I said, I've been doing it for about ten years. Kind of help some of my friends and family out. That's kind of how I found Common Stock as well. As just another good place to really um, learn more about the market, stay engaged, and and try and keep pace. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. So for those who
0: don't know, Common Stock is more more or less um, a platform. I I would k- kind of categorize it as just strictly like FinTwit. You could put a little bit more um you know longer memos and things like that so it's not necessarily broken down to the 250 character twitter limit um and Mm -hmm. and it's really informative so if you're on, on there um you know you should go ahead and check it out and then i'm also at green candle it on there as well so i got i got some stuff out there and uh yeah they've been putting together a lot of great stuff but um let's get into it so you said you've been an investor for 10 or so years um I think right now is a very, very interesting time with the extreme, extreme inflation that, that we're seeing. Uh, yeah. I think a lot of my audience is is pretty similar in age to us, maybe not uh, necessarily to the experience level of, of you or and in investing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, why don't you go into, I guess, a little bit about how you feel, uh, you know, investing in a time like this and uh, kind of, I guess, more or less your strategy going into, you know, when sure. you're seeing yeah. I, at, you know, as high as we're seeing right
1: now. Yeah. So, well, you kind of, for me, I like to stick to the strategy. So even if it's not the best of times, so the past year, full disclosure has been tough. I like growth. I like tech. You know, I feel like that from a young person's perspective is a good place to be, but I'm sticking with it. Right. And so what I'm doing is, is I'm really practicing a dollar cost average model, so trying to buy into the weakness and, and or into um, how things are going and if they're going up and looking to just kind of build substantial positions over a long period of time. Um, I split it up over three different accounts. So, um, or four actually now, so three are tax sheltered. So uh, got a traditional IRA, a Roth and another IRA that I converted over that I need to kind of consolidate. Um Plus, I've got uh, a taxable account as well. So that's kind of how I like to do that. So I can kind of minimize the taxes as much as possible. Obviously, I'm playing the long game in those retirement accounts, but for the most part, even in the taxable account, you know, my average hold is a year plus. So I am not a big fan of the jumping in and out. I'll dabble with the technicals and things like that just to kind of watch the entry and exit points so that I have a better understanding and I really do enjoy them. But Um, I think slow and steady wins the race and buying high quality names and, and sticking to it. So inflation's terrible. Yep. You know, costs are going up, stocks are going down. We've got rates raising and a few other things kind of as headwinds that we've got. But as I've kind of been in it for, like I said, about a decade now, you kind of have to roll with the good times and the bad times. And honestly, if you can kind of see beyond the six, seven months that, you know, most people's scope really goes out to because I'd be surprised, honestly, if, if anybody can go much further than that, truthfully, um, just because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know about the war in Ukraine at the time. You don't know about, you know, COVIDs and all the other things that are the black swan events that seem to kind of continuously happen. Um, but stay with it, keep going. And if you're in growth stocks, take this as an opportunity to add into them. Um, if you do feel like you need to make kind of a shift or a pivot, I, I would make sure that every stock that you're in, you have a reason to be there. And as long as that reason is sound, um, stick with it, right? So it's going to be different for everybody, but that's the way I like to approach things.
0: I gotcha. Okay, so um, I guess let's just, let's just back it out to your overall strategy now. So you said mm-hmm. you're, you're more of a growth investor. You like a lot of the growth stocks. So when you're looking at a growth company, how do you really break it down and how do you determine names that you're like, okay, this is one that I see that I'd like to invest in.
1: Yeah. So I like to keep it simple and buy what I know. Right. So if anybody goes and takes a look at my portfolio, they're going to see a lot of household names. Right. So I've already mentioned that I work in Salesforce. So that's like one of my core positions Um, just kind of building systems in on their platform. I have the opportunity to see the updates and rollouts in real time and things like that. And frankly, the fact that I couldn't operate as a sole proprietor without them, and I have clients that are, you know, large hospitals and things like that is pretty amazing. You, you know, the startup costs and things like that have changed dramatically over time. So that's obviously a name I want to be in because of that. Another one, Apple, you know, another staple, I've got an iPhone, uh, Apple TVs, kind of all that type of stuff too, right? So being a user or knowing that product in and out, is something that I really like to use for the most part as my reasons to buy. And so again, you'd see that with um, Roku and some of my other names too. Now I will branch out of that because obviously like I've got Tellurin on there um, and a couple other companies like that, that's a natural gas play. And those are for more diversifications and purposes and things like that, just to have a little bit of exposure to um, energy, which has been kind of a saving grace for me this past year. but it's kind of in that strategy. So again, just kind of having a reason to be there. But for the most part, I'm buying what I know, um, household names, strong fundamentals, um, things like that, that have, again, kind of a reason to buy. Like I, if I got to really like the product to own the company, because that's the way I look at it, right, is if you're a shareholder you're a part of, owner of the company, and and that's really what I'm looking for. So kind of buying those quality names and things like that. And then, frankly, I'm kind of always trying to learn and look at different people's portfolios, what they've got, try out different products, and and make my own decisions about what's best for me.
0: Yeah, so I think it's, it's pretty interesting the way you describe that because... I think uh, you know Warren Buffett has famously famously said you know invest in what you use and invest in you know companies exactly like you're saying. Mm -hmm. Um, But the way you look at it is more so growth, Um, and uh, you know it's it's more like tech stocks, right? Because the younger younger generation like us, we use a lot more technology than maybe say
1: that be a big part. But I'd say it's almost barbell like, right, where you kind of have your high growth on one side and then your value as well, because I will try and kind of balance that out a little bit. And so kind of to Warren Buffett's thing, like I have McDonald's right in my portfolio and think it's a great product and it's a great company and that's why I own it. Um, But I wouldn't exactly chop that one up to be, you know, a hyper growth name per se, right? Um, so kind of everything with balance and again, kind of having that reason, but at the same time, you know, in times like this, a McDonald's for me has been, you know, a solid stock to kind of buoy the portfolio, if you will. So, um, I don't know. I see a lot of folks that kind of go all in, in one direction and and they diversify if you will, but it's all within the same sector. Right. Um, Specifically tech is typically the one that you see the most of, right? So you'll they'll be like, Oh, I've got Apple, I've got Google, I've got Facebook, I've got you're like, All right, so you've got Fang, you know, the big names and everything, but um that's so I like to try and kind of balance that out a little bit. So I will branch out beyond the things I know to well, honestly, I'd still say that I know things like McDonald's. I've had too many cheeseburgers in my day anyway, but you know. <laughs> about um, right so right exactly
0: so. yeah so I mean I guess that that's interesting that's a good point um <clears throat> so I mean th- there's a there's a couple different views there right so you're bringing up more so diversification um mm-hmm. so I'd like to kind of get i guess more in depth of, of your viewpoint of there um because you know right now we we have probably more so volatile times than in the average stock market right so we had oh, yeah. well
1: I mean uh, some of the volatility I've seen in the 10 years I've been doing this.
0: Yeah, so what the S&P 500 was up about like 23% I think by the end of last year.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um and so, you know, we're having uh, 23% the average is like 10 to 11 um since I I can't even I think since the 40s or so. So, um you know, obviously more than double uh, of that growth um right. that that we see on average and uh yeah, um so because of this volatility, you're you're kind of bringing up diversification. Um mm-hmm. but you know, a lot of young investors and, and I hear this idea get thrown around a lot where they say, you know, focus on one um you know one single area and go kind of all in there to create wealth and that, that diversify to maintain and then wealth. figure it out later.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We'll do you try that of,
0: do you um. add to that theory or do you kind of um you know more so think, you know, because of the times that we're in and so diversified that, you know, it's maybe maybe you'll lose out on some returns, but you won't get quite the losses that you'll get right now uh, if you diversify.
1: Right. So, and, and there's a couple points on diversification too. Like people will often point at the averages, for example, as elements of being diversified. And I actually disagree with that personally. And the reason that I do is, You know, when it comes to the Dow and the S and P, and actually, I wrote a piece on common stock on this, um, going into the math of it. But they're weighted averages for the most part, or to kind of boil it down. And so, it's five or six stocks that really control how that average is going to do, right? So, if you were to look at like the median price increase or decrease, most companies like seventy percent or something like that are sitting on fifty-two week lows, but the averages aren't. And the reason that the averages aren't is because if you keep Microsoft, Google, you know, these multi-trillion dollar companies up there, it takes a whole lot of small caps to make up an Apple, right? Um, I think it's something like 496 of the S&P 500, which is actually 506 stocks, not 500, which is something I found out that was odd, um, is, is all tied up in that one area, right? So you got 50% in four stocks, um, So that's really what's buoying those averages. So it might not necessarily be the real diversified thought that you had originally, if you will. So what I like to try and kind of do is break it down into sectors. So, you know, predominantly tech, I'm young, so I'll do maybe 50% of my portfolio into that, maybe 10, 15%. And I like to kind of keep it smaller too. I can't keep track of, some people have these giant, lists and it's all less than 1% is their weights, right? And they have a thousand stocks. You might as well buy an ETF in my opinion at that point because it you can probably get a better sector ETF for that and um, get that diversification at that level. I like to kind of try and pick the best of breed within each of those sectors. So like for financials, my play is Bank of America. You know, consumer discretionaries are things like Apple, which would kind of fall under that tech umbrella too um Roku's again kind of half and half but I would put McDonald's as consumer consumer discretionary uh consumer discretionary as well then some energy plays things like that um I actually got kind of lucky on one um I've owned Allegheny Corporation for the past like five years and Warren Buffett bought that out last week so that was pretty fun so I got a 25% pop right off of that and that's um Honestly, I bought Allegheny because it was a small Berkshire Hathaway. Like they do the same thing. It's just another insurance company that's a holding company that buys small private organizations and kind of rolls them up. And so as opposed to going, you know, deep into Burke B or or, I wish Burke A, but, um, you know, at $500,000 a share, I'm not quite there. Um, But I kind of, like I said, sometimes staying in it, and buying those names that other people w- don't really know much about, but their fundamentals are solid, pay a good dividend and things like that. Times like this, you know, it kind of works out great. Um, and, and that's kind of the way I view diversification. So I like to be kind of solid and have my positions be roughly 5 to 10% each and keep it under 20 if you will, so that I can kind of get that diversification. But I think some people spread it just way too thin. Um, where they've got less than one percent in each of these. So let's say you have a rocket ship and you caught one. It doesn't really matter, right? Because it, it's not going to be. I mean, unless you got Bitcoin at 2012, right? And it, it has the ability to, or monster energy in 2009 or yeah, in 2009 or something like that. You're talking about seventy thousand percent returns. That's that's not something I can bank on, frankly, right? I, I, would, I would chop that up into the luck category. Um, so that's kind of the way I perceive diversification and things. Okay, I gotcha. All right, well, now let's get into like a little
0: bit of the macro, right? So we've had kind of a, you know, a crazy couple, two years or plus, I would say. Um, yeah, so year, right? yeah, so we've had, you know, the COVID pandemic led by mm-hmm. massive amounts of money printing by the Federal Reserve, yep. and then now we're having this, uh, you know, Ukraine, Um, Russia war going on Um, Mm -hmm. actually today I think it even announced it today's Monday the 28th when we're recording this Uh, they announced that Russia might be backing off slightly uh, but that's you know time will tell if that actually happens or anything like that so um, you know how do you view something when it's kind of like I guess this this black swan event with COVID and mm-hmm. then, um, you know, then I guess we'll get into the Ukraine-Russia war. Like how, kind of how, how do you approach these kind of things? Do you, you know, try to sell out like a little bit when it starts to dip just slightly and then buy back in at the bottom? Or do you just, you know, I know you alluded to the dollar cost averaging uh, a little bit earlier, but how I did ride. you do
1: this? So honestly, I didn't sell anything in COVID. And I remember just kind of questioning myself. I think it was like March 20th of 2020, right? I think that was the bottom, if I'm not mistaken, or. Somewhere right around there, trust me, it was when Bill Ackman and everybody was freaking out. Um, I mean, you're taking a big haircut, is what you're doing, right? Um, but at the same time, we rocketed back that second half of the year, mainly off the back of all the stimulus money and things like that. But I am so glad that I did not sell into that weakness. You know, that's one of my main things is, um, I won't sell something unless I really need the money for something. So like if my wife and I want to do a renovation or something like that, you know, I might dip my hand in the, in the cookie jar or something like that a little bit. Right. But that's also why kind of, what I mentioned earlier is splitting it up into multiple accounts. So three of the four are retirement. And so I can really only grab from a quarter of it anyway. Right. Um, And so that's kind of how I almost protect myself from it. And then all the dollars that I get coming in, even though it doesn't sound like much, but you know, every two weeks I put two hundred fifty bucks in each account, kind of thing, and and let those keep going. Set all of my dividend payers up to be drips or dividend reinvestments, um, so that you can kind of get the power of that compounding and things like that too. Um, so, so I didn't sell at all through it, and I have no intention of selling through. You know, kind of the current state of the market, even if that means it's going to be. A tough couple years you know i would say even though we rocketed back covid was a tough couple years too right it wasn't it wasn't easy to trade in that environment and so that's why again i kind of like to stick with it but the way i look at it is is like the companies that i'm buying and things like that like is mcdonald's going out of business i don't think so bank of america no a couple of the ones that i've got that are small caps Hopefully not, because they've been beaten up pretty bad. Like I have Fubo TV, for example, which is one that I really like as a product. I actually use it um, over YouTube TV and all the other ones. But um, if you go look at the chart, it's kind of been going in the wrong direction for a little while here. But I've been adding to it. And the way I see it is, is you know, granted, we have a Chapter 11 situation, which I don't believe we will at the growth rates that they've got. And I think that the leadership is strong in David Gambler, I'm holding it. Um, and I'll just keep adding, you know, even when it hurts, I guess, is the way to think about it.
0: Yeah. So it seems like basically you're, you're essentially saying if, you, if your thesis doesn't change on a company and you correct me if I'm wrong, if your thesis doesn't change, oh, you're, right. you're mm-hmm. not going to sell even the, in these hard times. So, yeah. um, I guess let's, let's bring it now to more, more common or more recent conflicts um mm-hmm. so the russia ukraine war uh going on here so how are you viewing it are you like kind of diving into different sectors because of this conflict uh, i know you kind of mentioned a little bit like you know some oil and gas plays yeah. um i know that uh you know oil and gas has been doing pretty well uh, ever since we we you know had a change of president in the united states at least mm-hmm. uh, because of policies and everything like that so um how are those doing now? And, and I guess, how are you looking at more of those, uh, you know, oil and gas stocks right now? And, uh,
1: so, so obviously basically it's a supply and demand problem. Right. And you'll hear out of, you know, the talking heads and things like that. It's a global market, all these types of things, but, um, which it is, but it's not as straightforward as that in my experience. Right. So like you can go up and down, on an individual company, uh, production, whether it be the United States, but if other areas are being cut out like Russia, for example, which is kind of what's happening now, which has kind of caused this big supply shock. Um, plus you're not really able to turn on a dime in those businesses either. So the, to answer your question, um, my play tell has been doing fantastic. It's the best performer I've got this year for sure. Um, but at the same time, I had been in that for a long time as well and continued to buy and buy and buy <laughs> to kind of give you an example of uh, the extreme levels I'll go in um, holding on to the stock. I, I In that March of 2020, Tellurin got cut by 90% in a single day. So it went from $8 a share to $0.88. Cents. Um, so I actually dragged my cost basis down to $0.98 cents a share that day. So I guess I times a thousand. I don't even know, like you know, I basically I had thrown I was buying it at ten dollars a share, so I was like, well, if it's under a dollar, I guess it's got to be a better deal. And now, um with it sitting at five seventy five a share, it's about a five hundred percent return. So you know, and again, I'm I sold eight percent of that last week because I try not to get greedy about it either. And so I was like, let me take a little bit off the top, just kind of considering the run that we've been on. Um, But, you know, still holding on to 90% plus of that. So basically I turned kind of a a big loss where most people would cut their losses and just leave. But I was like, my thesis on natural gas was if we're going to go to these green energy areas, you can't just turn the switches off. And you're going to have to bridge that gap somehow. And so I viewed natural gas as the natural bridge for that, which is why I bought into it. And then I didn't think any of that had changed just because of COVID. So I was like, oh, I guess, you know, for an extra couple thousand dollars, I can, you know, buy thousands of shares of this. And so that's what I did. Um, so, I mean, I massively increased that position. And this year it's really paid off. Um on paper anyway, because again, I'm not selling it really, but um, took some of those proceeds. I'll probably sell another 5% or so. And then because at that point, everything I'll have will be house money and I'll be able to reinvest some of that initial capital into, I don't know, something else, maybe buy some banks or something like that, just because with rates rising, I think those might be a good place to put money.
0: Yeah, so I guess, uh, you know, you you got deep into the, the oil stocks there. So do you think, um, you know, any other specific sector is going to be drastically affected by the I Ukraine
1: uh, conflict? The one that I'm looking at, and, and this is kind of, I'm at the beginning of my prospecting, I guess, on this is, um, basically a, a ton of wheat comes out of the Ukraine and Russia. And so I'm actually looking at companies like General Mills and, Um, Maybe some Procter & Gamble and a couple of other ones like that because, one, I feel like that's – it's not a product that you don't buy, right? Everybody's going to buy the bread no matter what it costs is what I'm thinking. So what I don't know yet is – and what people forget when it comes to agriculture things is we're eating last year's grain. So the harvests are not coming this fall is what's going to happen with the grain, not the other way around so what we're eating off of is our reserves that's why we haven't really felt it yet and there's a big lag and i think that those are oftentimes really good opportunities in the market because basically if you're kind of your typical trader you don't think about that type of stuff right like you know the bread at the supermarket is this yeah sure it might be going up but i don't see it going out of control and it might be a little too late at that point but kind of as i've been looking into it because that's their number one export Obviously, they're not going to be planning right now because it's springtime. This is when they would be doing that um, in Russia with all their assets and everything like that tied up, too. I just can't imagine that even if they do produce it with sanctions and things like that, we've got who's going to buy it. Right. So I kind of see those coming out. So I'm, I'm trying to think of basically a like General Mills would be another name too. people that make cereal, beer, uh, constellation brands, because basically wheat goes into tons of beers and that's who owns most of them. Um, so those are kind of things that I'm thinking about as potentially kind of recovery plays, if you will, on that. Um, and I'm thinking about them now because, well, it just hit the news cycle last week when, um, basically some of these guys, you know, Biden's the UN all them were kind of talking about potentially having serious food shortages and things like that. And again, I don't think that people kind of put two and two together with how drastic that lag is. So, um, since we're such a big breadbasket here in America, as those prices rise, I, I have a feeling we're going to be exporting that just like we're exporting natural gas and things like that on kind of a, a higher clip, which will probably raise those prices even more.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems like now, like because of this conflict and this, the sanctions we're putting place on Russia, um, you kind of alluded to it before, but it seems like before it was more so, you know, a global economy. And uh, now we're kind of seeing, I guess, the potential issues of that. And uh, yeah. it seems like we're, each country is kind of deciding to become more self, um, I guess, self sovereign, self independent. Self sufficient is really yeah, what it is. Because yeah.
1: if you have these, well, the globalist idea only works if everybody's friends, really, is what's going on. And um, what is concerning, I think, to a lot of people you know, right, left or, or wherever you fall in the spectrum really is just that we can't depend on others for these types of things. Right. So energy independence would be great. Obviously, you know, grain independence, I guess, is what we would call it with, with the other one there. But um, being able to make sure that you have what you need in some form or fashion, and then you've got all these other countries too. Like, you know, France is looking really smart right now with the way they went into nuclear compared to Germany it went all into natural gas thinking that natural gas wasn't going to go anywhere. And, you know, they each have their pros and cons, right? The, the con at the time a year ago was, well, we don't want to have nuclear waste and all that type of stuff. And well now they don't have a reliable source of Russian gas to get, which is driving their costs up. And the French have 70% of their energy in nuclear. And so that's really kind of turning into a boon for them from an energy perspective, because it kind of, eases those um, tensions plus energy is on a grid, right? Especially electricity. And so you saw like um, the Russians, what they're doing to make us a little more dependent on that gas is as is so they go through town, if you will, they shut down the nuclear reactors that they cross. And and that, if you want to heat your house, if you want to do all that, it just puts additional strain on that grid, which doesn't really care about the border, right? It's just pulling from one place or another, in having some of those large nuclear reactors over in Ukraine that are not running right now is really straining other countries to make up that deficit. Um, so I think you're right. It's kind of, we're going the pendulum's turn from globalism, I guess, to nationalism, I guess would be the, the opposite of that. Um, and, and I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing either because as we're seeing with a lot of these treaties and things like that, tying people up, um, they're only as good as if you're willing to stand on it. Right. And, and like, look at us and, and I hate to say it, but nobody's really coming to the Ukraine's Ukraine's rescue. Right. And, and I get why we don't want a world war and all that. Totally get it. But if you're Ukraine, right. You were kind of, you're kind of looking around like, what do you mean? You're not going to help us out. Right. Um, and, and so we'll see. Um, I'm not sure to what the future holds for like a NATO, for example, because I mean, they were originally designed to kind of stave off the Russians in the cold war, cold war ended 30 years ago. And and I guess because it's still there, it's almost putting us back into it. You know, it's like hammers and nails in a way. Um, so it's kind of interesting to, to see that play out as well.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's definitely a lot, a lot going on geopolitically um, you know, as, as you know, it's, exactly like you said, nobody seems to be coming to the Ukraine's help. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a Bitcoin guy specifically. So I, I've seen mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, Bitcoiners and, and people, individuals kind of donating to the Ukraine and things like that, which has been awesome to see, but yeah, as oh, far as sure. kind far of countries and everything goes, it, it hasn't really been the case. Um, yeah. There's kind of another looming conflict. Um, you know, we talked about it a little bit on the pre-show. Um mm-hmm uh you know china and taiwan uh there's been kind of rumblings that china might decide to do what russia is doing to the ukraine right now and and enter taiwan um how are you viewing that situation and are you kind of being wary of certain sectors because of uh i guess that looming situation
1: yeah so i mean the the one that sticks out the most is the semiconductor area right and just because you've got Taiwan Semiconductor, who's one of the like largest foundries and does all types of different work um, in and around the space. It's it's a pretty complicated area, right? You've got like the NVIDIAs of the world that are more designers and then they have kind of other people that produce it. But I think it's something like half of the world's chips really come out of Taiwan in that area. Um, and, you know, from the Chinese perspective, it's, It's never been its own country. That's the part that people kind of don't understand on the West, right, is that's just part of China, the one China policy and things like that. And China also plays a long game that we really don't over here in the West. I mean, they look at things in seemingly decades and centuries and things like that when it comes to um, what they're going to do and the moves that they're going to make. But like we're seeing last year, I think it was, Hong Kong kind of started having some – protests and unrest and things like that but that was 20 years after i think it was like the 1997 conference if you will that basically took um hong kong from the british and kind of put it back into kind of its own world if you will kind of as a bridge between the east and the west um and so it's going to be very interesting to see for sure i think that the chinese are absolutely watching this you know very, very closely. And I think that one of the silver linings of this conflict is, is, well, while sanctions don't appear to be the best deterrent, or any of that, they, they do hurt. Um, unfortunately, for the Russians, I think they hurt their people more than they hurt Putin, personally. But, um, you know, we're doing what we can, I guess, on that front. And it's kind of an area of, of economic warfare that we're kind of entering in for the first time. And so I think that's a big deterrent for the um, Chinese to see that, you know, if you get taken off of Swift and you get taken off of these areas that are pretty integral to commerce and trade, um, it can hurt even the big guys, I guess. Um, That said, I, I think that they, I don't see why they wouldn't move in when anybody's guess could be a year, could be five years, could be 20 years, right? But they've made it pretty clear that they view Taiwan as part of China and they want to reunify it. And with the you know, flyovers that they do with the bombers and the various things like that, the writing appears to be on the wall to me. And so that's honestly one of the reasons why I've kind of been out of China in that area for the most part for the better part of a a year at this point, Um, just because I don't see the U S and Chinese tensions really easing at this point when they do, we're going to see a bunch of companies rocket, you know, like we talked about Alibaba and things like that, who are great on a fundamental basis, great companies, but the big, but is they're in China, right. And tough, but, but a lot of investors don't want to stomach that, you know, Doesn't matter what they look like, you know. Charlie Munger is one of the biggest people that is behind Alibaba at the moment, and saying, you know, screaming by, screaming by, screaming by. Problem is, is I just don't know if Charlie Munger specifically is going to live to see that day. Um, I think he's 99 years old at this point, so well, I hope he's right, but uh, because that would mean a lot of good things for you know U.S. Chinese tensions. But they've made it pretty clear to me what they're looking to do, and it's just a matter of when. And it's going to be very interesting to shield ourselves from this. I think the best thing that we could do is kind of going back to that nationalistic idea of things like what NVIDIA has been doing is one of my names that I'm holding and a reason that I like them a lot is maybe more expensive, but they're opening up a lot of um, opportunities in places like Texas and California and other areas like that so that they're kind of getting away from it. Now, don't get me wrong. If something like that geopolitically were to happen and 70% of the chips get taken out, if you will, right? that type of thing and NVIDIA is not going to be immune to that by any stretch, but we have time now and everything that we can be doing to kind of preempt that, especially around things like rare earth elements too. And another one back to Ukraine is the neon actually. So like neon is very critical in the actual foundry or building of the chips. Um, I'm not sure technically why, frankly, but I know it's important and the Ukraine makes 60% of it. And so that's kind of the tap's been turned off. Um, and we kind of see that in a lot of different areas. Helium is another one that's kind of interesting like that too, um, where they have a lot of industrial applications that you don't really see, you know, reasons for like a neon sign. It's like, oh, that can't be important. But when you think about it from, well, you want your iPhone or you want your computer or you want this or you want that, we need neon um, for the industrial processes, if you will. So yeah. Um, those will be kind of other side effects of this that are going to be interesting that are going to play out, like I said, in a delayed reaction too. you know, we have stores of it and we have this and that. So hopefully the conflict wraps up soon and and we can kind of bridge that gap. But let's say they come to a peace agreement in the next week, because I know they're having kind of some serious talks this week and things like that. I can't see us just turning the sanctions off, if you will, right? Like, I I can't see the next day being like, you know what? Let bygones be bygones, Russia. Don't worry about it, right? Like, I kind of feel like those sanctions are kind of here to stay for quite some time would be my guess. Um, But then again, I don't know. Um, That's just where my head is on it is these things are usually quick to come on and slow to come off. Just like with gas prices, you know, they're quick to rise, slow to drop, that type of thing.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, you kind of you took a dive into the semiconductor space, and you know, what I think is interesting too is is like uh, throughout this COVID pandemic with all the shutdowns, it seems like the semiconductor space has been hit the hardest as far as like the supply chain issues and everything like mm-hmm. that. Um, and you know, with the, with the way that the world is going, everything's becoming smart, everything's having some sort of screen attached to it, whether it's automobiles or something like that. So we're seeing various industries get drastically affected by this chip shortage that we're going on. Yeah. Um, Like
1: cars specifically, right? Like that's the big one that comes to mind for me. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think that,
0: uh, you know, exactly like you said, if this China, Taiwan conflict, which seems like it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when uh, happens, that this chip shortage is going to, you know, even get hit even harder. Um, So, I guess, uh, you know, how are you viewing the? You you, you kind of mentioned Nvidia. I know Nvidia's mm-hmm. got the the famous Pelosi capital backing as well. Yeah, um,
1: yeah, she's she's not bad at that. I mean, yeah, she's not a bad investor good. at all. Um, yeah, exactly. I don't know if she should be allowed to, but that's a whole nother can of worms. But
0: <laughs> exactly. Um, and so uh, I guess how how would you think that we would even get out of this chip shortage area and like start to help because. I think a lot of politicians are kind of blaming, um, you know, some of this inflation on that aspect of it when, oh, I, sure. I, and when I think in reality, a lot of it is is just due to the money printing and, and some of those other issues, exactly. of
1: course. Yeah. I know. think, I think that has something to do with it. Right. Like yeah. a lot of people that don't know, we printed, I think it, the statistic is something like 40% of all money that's ever been in, in existence was created in the last 12 months. Yeah. And you know, no wonder things cost more money, right? Like, I mean, if you flood the system and then it kind of like what we've been talking about all along with these delayed reactions, we're dealing with the hangover of that now, a year and a half later. You know, the market at the time, you pump a bunch of money into it, it's going to go in one direction, it's going up and that's what it did. And now we're kind of coming back to earth, if you will. And because costs are um, as high as they've been in inflation, this is kind of, it's kind of a runaway train situation. It's going pretty, pretty hard and fast, I guess, at the moment. And the Fed's kind of got their hands tied. I mean, most of the time when we ran into these types of situations, the Fed had interest rates already up. You know, having zero interest rates is not normal, except for people our age, really, right? Like in our lifetime, they've always been somewhat low because starting from the, basically into the dot-com boom is when it's really started going way down with the um, rates and things like that. But, you know, in the 80s, they were like 20% that type of stuff. 70s even higher than that. And so, I mean, it's it's a different world that we're in at this point and I'm not 100% convinced either that raising rates in of itself is going to really change that much with inflation. Um mainly because the idea behind that as I understand it anyway was to kind of temper down the economy so that you kind of slow that down so that costs come down with it and all these other things, but I'd kind of make the argument that the economy isn't as strong as it may appear on face value, right? Like people point to the jobless claims and those types of things too. But in my opinion, that's really only half the equation because the other side of it is job openings and quits and all that type of stuff. And we've had the great resignation, you know, all kinds of different changes, you know, I'm a pretty good example of it. Honestly, I, I've worked for big corporate for a long time and I've gone off on my own and have my own business now, um, for better or for worse. Right. But that technology has allowed people to do that type of stuff. Um, and I don't know if the economy is as strong as it may appear. And so therefore by knocking it down with rates, I don't know if that's going to drive the costs down. It might just push the unemployment rate to match the, um, job openings for example or something to that effect right it might just be kind of some unintended consequences um so time will tell and unfortunately it's really the only hammer we have left at this point so they're gonna do it that you know that the fed's gonna use it (laughs) um and so that's gonna be kind of a tough one for again growth stocks and things like that but again it doesn't mean that all is lost if you will but it it's just, I'm prepared, cautiously optimistic and and prepared to just kind of ride it out um, and continue to work and and make as much money as I can to then put a portion of that in on kind of a strategic allocation basis. And, you know, the hope is, is 10 years from now, we've sorted this out, even if it took kind of a rough five or something like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, exactly. And you've kind of pointed to it a couple of times, you know, throughout this about the Fed raising rates. So um, I think it was earlier this month, for the Fed decided to raise it from, you know, about zero to 0.25 to about mm-hmm. 0.25 to, to 0.5. You know, they kind of give it to you in a range. Yeah. Um, so, so during that, that call, they said that they're going to meet seven more times, I believe, um, mm-hmm. throughout the, rest of the year. Uh, and they said that they believe they're going to raise rates every single time uh, they meet and try to get to about 1.9% by the end of the year. Um, yeah. And then I, the last guest I had, he's uh, at Deer Point Macro on on Twitter. So if you're not following him, he he's a really good follower, and I think you should. Yeah. Um, but anyway, he, he went through and he kind of thought that, you know, throughout this, he thinks that, you know, the, because of the geopolitical environment and, uh, you know, the other stuff going on and, uh, you know, I, I kind of ascribe to the theory that, you know, it's a midterm election year and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that the, the politicians, you know, the, their main goal is to get reelected, right? So yeah. Uh, If they have uh, a bunch of raising rates, it's going to essentially negatively affect the market um, unless, you know, you subscribe to the theory that a certain amount of uh, rate hikes are, are, you know, uh, accounted for in the market or whatnot. Um, But I think seven eventually would kind of bring the the market down as a whole. Um, So Deerpoint said he thinks that there's going to be about three. um, And he says he doesn't think that there's any way that they could do uh, more or less than three. Um, I think
1: he's pretty much spot on. I, I, I agree with that. So the way I've seen the Fed personally, right, is if you've ever kind of like read through the minutes and things like that, they literally will point out a comma change and things like that, you know, month over month. So what I think, you know, j Powell's doing basically is going there and looking at it and saying, we need to set expectations and get them to price some of this in now. Right. So we're going to tell them the worst case scenario, which is seven rate hikes at 0.5 each potentially is kind of as high as he win. But with him saying, you know, a 1.75 um, ish, or whatever it was going to be as their target, right. For the interest rates by the end of the year, they're almost kind of saying that that's probably not going to happen. I do think that they're going to be data dependent. As they say, they really can't telegraph what they're doing very well because The market will react now to whatever that is. So again, I think that they're temporary expectations with the hopes, kind of going into your second point because politics is absolutely a part of the market. You know, a lot of people, I think, make the mistake of thinking that you know, frankly, if it was just as easy as the fundamentals and doing a you know discounted cash flow and things like that, everybody would do this. It would be easy, but it doesn't work that way. (laughs) And and you've got these black swans, whatever you want to call them, that come in and they they change the dynamic, right? And so politics is definitely going to play a role into this coming into the fall um, for the midterms. And, you know, we're going to see, like the Democrats were talking about, cutting taxes, you know, gas taxes and things like that. That's kind of been the exact opposite of what they had been saying forever, more or less, you know, in the last couple of years and cycles and stuff like that. So, I mean, money will make people change their tune, in a bunch of different ways. So I agree with him. I think that the fed's going overly hawkish so that we prepare for that in the event that they need it. But I think that he's probably right that maybe we see three hikes, maybe they're 0.5 each, which would still kind of get us up to 1.75 by the end of the year. But if it's every other month, not every month, or who knows, maybe we see the, conflict end and then that's a good time to move it 0.5.5 5 right there you know because in their eyes the market will have gone up gravity is kind of what it reminds me of if you will and the feds kind of bringing us back down to earth at this point point. and like i said we've had for better part of our lifetimes rates at zero which is not typically how economies function right um and, and you can get into all kinds of different things. Like if you haven't, I've looked into MMT or modern monetary theory, which is kind of a, at face value, a crazy concept really that like you can just print as much as you want, as long as people accept it and and that you control that supply, which is what we're doing because we're no longer on the gold standard and things like that. And that's why we printed 40% of the cash, but then you're going to see things rise proportionally. And, you know, kind of back to the inflation topic too, as another small tangent is, is, you know, CPI, I don't think is a great indicator, just like the fed isn't necessarily either. Right. Because they cut out all kinds of stuff and they draw circles around it. And you can kind of make statistics say whatever you want. If you're willing to cut out things like gasoline, education, you know, and those are the types of things that are in my life. Right. Like are some of the biggest ones, right. Like, you know, um, and and they'll they'll say it's eight percent but if the cpi is flashing eight percent i i'd tell you double that you know easy is is what i would say as as kind of like what um the real number is
0: yeah and i i mean uh you're you're exactly right here so i was just doing a little some quick math um over here to kind of I uh, see. So I'm in I'm in Tampa, Florida, which has been mm-hmm. one of the places that's been growing rapidly and kind of, you know, essentially benefiting from co- the COVID pandemic. So oh,
1: I so is Georgia, which is where I am. So uh, both yeah. states, right. It's kind of um, I think I mean, obviously, you've got DeSantis and things like that. And we've got Governor Kemp. But like we were one of the first to, you know, get rid of the restrictions. You guys were right there with us, too. And the influx of people. I mean, my house cost has gone up significantly in the past two years because of this, because my theory is, is honestly, if you're, I've got clients in all over the country and stuff like that. If you're coming from a New Jersey, a California, you know, a place like that to an Atlanta or a Tampa, the cost of living from your eyes is so much less than it is to us who kind of grew up in it. I grew up in Atlanta Um, and they're dragging the housing prices and things like that with it because to them, you know, I, I had a boss actually before I went off on my own and he moved from he worked at Microsoft um, so he came from Seattle and he was like, you can get a lot of a house for a million dollars. I was like yeah, you're damn right you can get a lot of house here for a million dollars. I was like, I mean I had nothing back home and I have like he was like, I'm getting a pool, I'm getting this I was like, good for you man, like that's awesome but you know, it, to, to him he was like, this is incredible, I can have land, like I can have multiple stories and stuff like that and I was like think making me think I was like, geez, like, God, that's got suck to sucked where you know a million dollars doesn't even get you two stories in Seattle. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a ranch on a quarter acre kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. So
0: I mean you could definitely relate. And uh, you know, I closed on my house at the end of September 2020 and I just did the math. Like according to the Zillow estimate, you know, take for that what you what you will. Yeah. Um but uh my my housing price has gone up 48% in the, since that time. Um, yeah. Which is and, crazy. So, yeah and so obviously, mm-hmm. you know, the, the year over year inflation of seven and a half percent just, just isn't even close to accurate. No,
1: no, that's not what it is. You know, not for the, the, so there's one metric that I actually really like. It's back to McDonald's. It's the big Mac indicator and that's <laughs> in like 41%. Wow. Um, know yeah. That. And so that is, I think, the best indicator for inflation as a proxy because what it does is it takes into account the globe. McDonald's is everywhere. Tons of input costs, right? And frankly, a Big Mac is like the last thing that the price raises on ever. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, it's on 41% in the last year. That's where my money is when it comes to inflation, not 7 8%, right? Like. Yeah. I mean, look at cost of schools and things like that. What's insane is is like talking to my dad about like he went to college in you know nineteen seventy nine to eighty three or something like that, right? It was like fifteen hundred dollars a semester. A lot of people pay a hundred grand a year now to go to school and mm-hmm. but that's not in c p i right? Like you're that's like, it. wait a minute, so how could that be excluded? How could cost of living be excluded? How could gas, how could this, how could that? it's a basket of goods and it's kind of literally like as if they had gone through a supermarket and grabbed a bunch of stuff and thrown it in there. And then, Oh, it's only 8% more. So um, just like kind of, we were saying with the fed, like you kind of have to be able to start reading between the lines a little bit. And that's what really kind of separates the good investors from, you know, the ones that are kind of taking it at face value, because what they teach you in the book, if you will, I wish was exactly the way it was, but if it was, everybody would just do it, right? We wouldn't have these conversations. It would just go in a straight line up. It'd be nice, I'm sure, but um, the market's built up of people, and people are kind of irrational, which is why the market's irrational.
0: Yeah, exactly, and uh, I was actually just looking at, uh, I I discussed this on on another podcast with uh, at Joey tweets, who's the host of Canadian Bitcoiners podcast? Because you know a lot of uh, Bitcoiners, in, as in general, look at uh, you know Bitcoin. So, essentially, was looked at as as almost as an inflation hedge at one point. Um,
1: yeah, no, it certainly was. It, yeah, it, and it, now I think it's, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, so now I think it's kind of looking more as like a, you know a global reserve currency, as as maybe even tied mm-hmm. to, to the dollar. Um, you know there's been some books written in, instead of the gold standard It'd be the Bitcoin standard and things like that, but just sure. looking at the breakdown of the c p i numbers from last month um here I'll read out a couple percentages for you yeah um, sure. so, yeah, so energy services uh including fuel or oil it was up forty three percent gasoline all types up thirty eight percent energy commodities mm-hmm. up thirty seven point nine percent uh, new vehicles up twelve percent. Used vehicles up forty one point two percent. So I mean, obviously, just from and some CPIs of the- at eight. Yep, CPIs at eight. Food awake <laughs> or food at home, which I don't even know how you can uh, account for that, but food at home is eight point six percent. So it's even higher than uh, you know the uh, yeah the seven point nine percent reported. So obviously, what's the
1: impact you know- indicator on there? Because forty one percent sounds pretty good right now, right? yeah
0: exactly and and so <laughs> I, I agree with you 100% it's like they're 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 reporting one number and they're trying to get to the lowest possible number when it, when inflation is that mm-hmm. bad so the average person the average joe in america understands that um you know inflation is a lot higher than that 7.9% sure. um, so uh, i guess you kind of talked about the you know the monetary theory there um let's well let's get into it so what do you think like i guess is the solution of mmt to, uh, yeah. Do you think, you down like, MNT? well, I mean, I, I like y- it. Yeah, you out, know me is what you got to say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, like I told you before, I, I'm kind of a Bitcoin guy. So, you know, I kind of mm. ascribe to that theory where, uh, you know, maybe taking it out of human control would kind of be a little bit better for, uh, you know, sure. the consumer and people as a whole. Um, but what do you kind of see as the solution um, to to get out of this in, in extremely inflationary time? Do you think that there's an end in sight? I know we've had Yellen come out and say that, you know, expect to see high inflation for at least another year or so, um, which yeah. obviously probably doubled that amount of time at least. So um, yeah. Yeah. How do we get out of this?
1: So, I mean, it's, it's the million, it's the trillion dollar question at this point, really, we've inflated it to where you can't even use that, uh, you know, <laughs> that moniker anymore, really. But um. I guess, I think we really need to solve the labor problem first, honestly. So like, I think that people are looking at the wrong metrics when it comes to um, employment, right? So the the jobless claims, things like that versus the job openings. And, you know, the great resignation appears to be pretty real. People working from home and kind of changing that up. I think the pandemic was a big kind of eye-opening moment for a lot of people in terms of, is this what I want? is this what I really want to do? Whatever. And we saw kind of people make changes left and right um, that kind of disrupted the market and things like that. But what worries me a bit is stuff like, um, I don't know, autonomous vehicles is a good example of it. Right. And and a lot of companies for profit margins, X, Y, and Z would love to see the day with no drivers. But what worries me is, is, well, what are those people going to do? And, and what's the answer going to be for that? Right. Because if we've got an inflated environment already, and then we start taking away the ability for folks to make money um, that could be, that could kind of spell trouble in my opinion. Right. So I think that we need to figure out a way to incentivize companies to almost, to not, not take advantage of automation. Right. I'm in technology for God's sake. Right. So like, I mean, I build systems for a living, but the way I look at it is is I try and build like a work platform that allows people to continue to do their job, but at a better, more productive pace. Right. Um, And then I think that we need to start addressing a couple of the kind of the big ticket items. Like I think that a lot of folks have got them picked out pretty well in like education costs, for example. I think the problem with education costs is the loans in the schools, not just the, Basically, you, they, we've set up a game for education where you're you can charge anything you want because you're expected to just go get that interest-free loan or whatever, right? From whoever the government will give you this, the government will give you that, and what is that, it, it, or not the government or private? Whoever is going to give it to you, right? But we've looked at prices go from what my dad paid in the '80s of you know fifteen hundred dollars to one hundred and fifty grand for if you're um, a year if you want to be a doctor. At a lot of places like that, right? And I think that college may not be the answer for everybody. I think that a lot of people will be better off going to trade schools and doing different things because we're seeing basically kind of a split between skilled and unskilled labor. So like things like plumbers, trash folks, you know, um, electricians, general contractors, things like that are in super high demand and you can make a really good living these days off of salaries like that, that you don't really need college for. But we kind of live in a society where you're looked down upon if you don't do it, you know, you're expected to get the loan. The school looks at it is, is, well, it doesn't matter what I charge you because somebody's going to give you the money. But what they all forget is, is that somebody has got to pay the piper at the end of the day. Right. And now we're talking about stuff like canceling the debts and things like that. And I don't think those are the good answers either because it's like, well, so I'm the guy that paid out of my pocket or I paid for my kids to go to school, blah, blah, blah. Kind of what about them? Right. You get into all the what about and stuff like that. But to answer your question again, I think that we need to address the labor problem first and find a way for people to be able to make good fundamental family decisions on what they're going to do with their life and things like that and incentivize them to go in those directions with or without a big bill attached to it for school, right? Like if you're going to go, I don't understand why an art major exists truthfully. Like, I mean, I, I've got an art behind me. I, I love art. It's not that, but Picasso didn't go to the art school, right? Like, you know, like these, all these people kind of figured that stuff out on their own. Um, and so I think that we should kind of push people in those types of directions. I think that we need to teach economics and personal finance as a math, like, like, you know, people with education and things like that, the that model was built to basically pump out a bunch of good factory workers. That's why you learn geometry, trigonometry, all that type of stuff, so that you could do the angles, you could figure all that type of stuff out. We live in a different world these days. Like I think that if you taught somebody how to frankly balance a checkbook and invest, you'd be in a whole lot better shape today than learning geometry, right? And and people balk at that idea, but to me, they're both math. Right, you're learning numbers, you're learning how they work. Con- you can get very complicated with it too. But I don't understand why we don't teach kids basic financial information, um, and things like that as well. So I think education, labor, and honestly, I think a lot of deregulation is needed to basically make it easier to live the American dream, if you will. Because I mean, that's that's what I'm trying to do now. I left like big corporate. I've got my own company. I've been doing it for a few years. I've made it through COVID at this point and stuff like that too. So, you know, uh, knock on wood, if I was going to fail, I felt like I'd fail by now. Um, And I love it. But at the same time, you know, why, why can't other people do this easier or, or why do they need to make it so seemingly it feels very difficult to do this type of thing. Like I feel like I'm working harder now than I did at any of my other jobs and things like that. It's more rewarding, but um, there's a lot of extra things that you have to kind of figure out on your own. Um, And, and to me, that's taken a lot of dedication and work. And frankly, I'm still figuring a lot of it out, right? Like, you know, it's, it's kind of a never ending game.
0: Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, it kind of goes back to the, the the issues that we have in, in the education system. Um, you know, it kind of reminds me of, like, you know, Kanye West, some of his early albums. He tells you that, you know, people graduate and they're still stupid because everybody tells you yeah. to read this, eat this, do all this kind of stuff. So, right. um, you know, and, and that theory definitely still holds true. Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of going to we're kind of shifting backwards and people are trying to get a little bit more automated with things when, you know, mm-hmm. I think. You know, it's making the trades more desirable. Well, uh, let, let me get you one last question to wrap it up here. All right. How are you feeling going into the rest of the year? I know you said you're a long-term guy, so mm-hmm. uh, all the macro stuff going on, how are you feeling with the next year to a couple years? Are you bullish, bearish on the stock market? How do you think, uh, you know, we're going to go? You think we we're, we got a bumpy ride ahead, straight up, straight down? What do you think?
1: I think it's going to be bumpy, but the good news is, is you know, I – I love being a bull and I want to be a bull. So I I do look through things through rose colored glasses at times and things like that. It's just my nature. And things have kind of been beaten down for such a long time as well, that sentiment is way, way, way down. So if you kind of believe in mean reversion and things like that, and I think that sentiment is the number one indicator is if, if the market is going to go up or down. Right. Um, And since we're so in the dumps, if you will, on a sentiment scale, I think that we might see kind of a drift back up into the summer and into some of these months and things like that. I think that as that happens, the Fed's going to kind of kneecap us a little bit each time because their prerogative is to to taper down, you know, reduce inflation and all those other things. So it's there's gonna be some things in our way. So we've got hurdles, but I'm staying the course. I'm gonna be long. I think in five years the stock market is gonna be higher than it is today, you know, from that perspective shorter than that, it's going to be all over the place. I mean, we'll probably see 10% correction again this year, 20% up or something like that. Like we did, you know, last year. Um, Let's see how it pans out. But I think that um, stick to your strategy. And if you don't have one, develop one. And if you don't have that, just stick to the averages. They'll protect you in that respect. Cause even if, like I said, it's not truly diversifying, there's five companies that'll hold you up <laughs> you know. just let them do it. Um, but overall I'm bullish. There we go. Overall, <laughs> yeah. There we go.
0: All right. Well, that's the end of the show. Strib, tell us where everybody can find you. I know we mentioned a little bit of the.
1: Yeah. 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 Find me at, at Strib on common stock or Sam underscore three at Twitter. Um, far more active on common stock. So I think they're probably be the best, but, um, Feel free to reach out with any questions or anything like that. DM me whatever you need to do. Always happy to talk. And and honestly, Brandon, thank you so much for having me. This was an absolute pleasure.
0: All right. Thank you so much for having us. All right. That's it. We're wrapping it up.